Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Yankees Magazine podcast. I'm Hillary Georgie. Joining me is Al Sanasiri. Hello. And John Schwartz. Hey there. How's it going, guys? Great. Happy second half. Happy second half. We got some day baseball on right now as we record this. We are we are watching on an iPhone, even though there's a TV right there. It's fine. <laughs> but let's talk a little bit about our, our our second half ace, who we hope, who is on the cover of the August issue of Yankees Magazine. Finally, Luis Severino. Al, you wrote the story. What was the angle? What were you excited about? How did the story come out? Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, you know, I was excited to to write the story and excited to interview um, Luis, who obviously had a tremendous first half. And uh, at the time that I um, sat down with him at Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia, um, a day before his, his start there, uh, I think he had a 1.980 ERA. And Obviously, is um, you know is is one of the best pitchers in the game, and and that happened you know seemingly overnight. And like already had fourteen wins by yeah. the second half, which was as many as he had all of last year. Exactly, and uh, so you know the angle of the story was really just you know kind of talking to him about the things that he did not only this past off season but the previous off season to get better and to get to the point of being one of the premier. Um, starters in you know in the in the game um you know and he and he talked a lot about uh you know becoming more um in, in getting into better physical shape running a lot doing things like that um and then obviously his mindset was so fascinating to me and just the way he wants the game of the ball excuse me in the biggest games whether it's in regular season starts and his start on opening day in toronto or his starts uh here against uh other teams ace pitchers and just the the success he's had has has been tremendous and um i think the the biggest thing that stood out for me is was how much he wants to accomplish this year how much he wants to continue to improve and and obviously take that into the future as well both john and i have written stories and have talked about when we sat with luis severino being surprised at how open he was about everything did you have that same experience with him was he he's he's always somebody who in my experience is happy to dive deep with you absolutely yeah no i i did um he, you know, there were things he he talked about from um, this past off season and the work that he had done, and and just you know, to that point, like what I respect about him is somebody who's not afraid to kind of put out there what he wants to do. You know, a lot of times people are afraid to say, well, I want to accomplish this, this, and this, because if they don't, they're afraid, you know, well, then it looks like I failed in, in reaching these goals. He didn't have that, um, you know, that same mentality. Uh, so he was, yeah, he put it all out there, and um, it made for a great interview. And he's also, uh, um, and John, can, and, and you can speak about this, John especially can from spending time with him, um, in the Dominican Republic, but also a really good person to sit down For with, sure. a nice person and um, really uh, bright person. And it's uh, I've said this probably too many times on this podcast this year, but a guy who, when the interview's over, you kind of wish it, it was still going because he's a real pleasure to, to spend time with. I really, I agree with everything you just said. One thing that sticks out to me, even more than the story I wrote about him in the Dominican Republic was, God, I don't remember what month it was. I think it was June, I wrote the story about velocity, pictures right. of their velocity. Yeah. And, you know, you go talk to a lot of these guys, and even the guys who, you know, I have very good relationships with, a lot of the time, first off, 
most baseball players prefer to talk in superficial terms in general. A lot of times it's kind of just muscle memory to them. They know what they're doing, not because even if they understand the analytics and analytics and look at them, they don't necessarily, it's, it's difficult to describe sometimes, you know, what one degree of difference can make in any given way. Severino, who, you know, has all the reason in the world not to necessarily want to talk about what's working so well for him. He was the one who sat with me and really was showing me, you know, what happens when he stretches back, you know, and pulls the arm back. And if he overextends or if he, you know, throws too hard, trying to make sure I'm able to look at it and see kind of what what's the ball is going to do when that happens. You know, and this is stuff that I was trying to get from watching video. This is stuff I was trying to get from talking to pitchers. But when you have the ace on the staff, you know, a kid really who's coming out there and saying like, this is what it means to say overthrowing. And this is what happens when you overthrow. I wasn't expecting the conversation to go there. I was grateful it did. You know, we're going to talk later in this about another story that I wrote where again, you know, I, I, I start asking um, Louise a question about it. And instead of giving me a rote answer, it's, you know, this is what happens if my arm is here. And this is what happens if my arm is here. And this is what happens if my arm is here. And, you know, he's giving claps to kind of show me like the different pace and things like that. And this is time when you expect a simple answer. You expect a, you know, you just got to try to repeat things. You got to work as hard as you can. And he's saying to me like, no, there's actual like, you know, you can look at it and I'll, let me show you so you understand this better. And these aren't things that you can necessarily quote. And these aren't things that necessarily can turn in your story into. And Luis Severino said this, but I know that when I'm writing a story, there's a couple guys in the clubhouse, you know, Austin Romine's definitely one of them. Greg Bird is one of them. And definitely Severino is one of them who I want to say, let, I'm not talking about quoting right now. I need you to help me understand. Right. They'll the just situation. help you inf mm. inform you of like the actual mechanics and things that you don't otherwise know. Yeah. This person said this, Luis, can you show me what he means when he says this? And it's weird, again, not to keep repeating myself, to go to the ace for that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's not for nothing. I mentioned Austin Romine, who is great and obviously has a big role on this team, but I don't go to Gary Sanchez for information about all the pitchers because Gary Sanchez has a lot of stuff that he has to deal with. Austin Romine is usually at his locker and he's willing to give me five minutes to say, let me explain to you what this pitcher is trying to do. And I think it speaks to just how comfortable Luis Severino is with himself, with his role on this team. Like you said, Al, he's a guy who who wants to be asked questions, mm -hmm. who wants to succeed, and who wants to see everybody else succeed as well, whether that's his teammates or even us. He wants us to get what we mm -hmm. need. He, when I interviewed him, he's like, do you have whatever you need? If you need follow-ups, let me know. And I'm like, this is a guy who's just willing to help at all points. That's totally another thing that I would mention. You know, look, we have an hour in the clubhouse before every game. Um, a lot of these players are busy. A lot, of these, a lot of these players simply don't like talking to the media, and I can't necessarily blame them because it's probably a weird thing to have to do. Severino is the guy who will say to you, I can't talk right now. I have to go run. Now, what that's usually code for is I don't want to talk to you. Um, yeah. Severino, though, will come back from his run, walk over to you, and say, I'm ready for you now. Right. And a lot of players don't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll piggyback off of something you said a couple of seconds ago in terms of just how open he is about um, his mechanics and all that stuff. One thing you know that I spoke to him about and really wanted to know was just to t have him kind of take me into his repertoire of pitches, his fastball, his slider, and his changeup. And what he what he spoke to me about that I that I was really uh, fascinated by was. The, the way that he uses the changeup. He's obviously developed a changeup that's effective and that can get people out, but when his fastball is working and 
uh, he's locating it really, really well, and his slider is working and locating that really well, he doesn't even go to his changeup. But when he needs the changeup, it's there, and it's able to he's able to use it to get guys out. What was interesting is I stayed in Philly for an extra day to watch him make his start. I spoke to him a day before the start down there, and then stayed to watch him make this uh, start against the Phillies. And he pitched a gem that night. Um, and in speaking to him again for, for a follow-up after the, after the game, and just to, to your point, he knew that I was working on a feature. So he didn't, you know, force me only to talk to him when the reporters, when the mainstream media were talking to him. We got a couple minutes on the side after he spoke to the media to kind of go back and analyze that game on the heels of the interview that, that I had done the previous day and it was a game where he everything was working those first two pitches were working so well that he didn't even really use the change up or didn't really need it I'm not saying he didn't throw it at all but barely needed it and I think that's a real um kind of sh- uh, sign of maturity of a, a of a pitcher to be able to have that pitch and really only need it uh, only use it when he needs it right he's just got in his back pocket he's got in his back pocket and and you know sometimes you know I know the last couple starts he struggled a little bit um, some more than others, but it's good to know he has that pitch. So when the other ones aren't working, he can still get through a game. He might not throw a, a shutout in those games where the fastball and the slider aren't working, but he can he can still be effective and he can still put the Yankees in a position to win games. So I'm really curious. Your store has a great lead about being in a Mitchell and Ness uh, store, um, you know, and income Reggie Jackson and CC Sabathia, and you know the. The angle of your lead is, you know, someone asks CC how he feels about tonight and his answer, and this is CC, the veteran, the guy who's seen it all. He's like, we're fine. Sevy's on the mound tonight. How did that come about? What was the backstory there? It's funny. I mean, it was, so the backstory was the hotel that I was staying at um, was like, you know, like next door to the Mitchell and Ness store. And I never thought when I was writing this story about Luis Severino, there would be any uh, scene in a Mitchell and Ness store. Um, I did, you know, travel down there with my family and, and my 10 year old son. Uh, I think I had told too many stories about uh, too much, having spent too much money in the Mitchell and Ness store before. So when he saw it the night before, he said, we got to go there so I can spend a lot of your money. Um, so I just was with him and we walked in and literally like as soon as we walked in, CC Sabathia and Reggie Jackson happened to walk in and, you know, we had, a, I had a, we had a little conversation with them and said hello or whatever. And, you know, we were, you know, a couple feet away when some really uh, excited, uh, you know, employees of the stores, eyes were popping out of their head when they saw Reggie Jackson in particular. <laughs> and I think needed to a couple seconds to work up the courage to talk to Reggie Jackson, obviously a legendary player and a Hall of Famer. And that was it. And the conversation just I just witnessed this conversation um, and it was just funny because I was there to do a story on a player who was not in the Mitchell and Ness store, but yet he was the person that everyone was talking about. I mean, you literally can't script it <laughs> better than that. So it, um, when I went back to the room and, and just kind of jotted down what I had just seen, I, I, I said to myself, this has to be part of the story because it, it's a, a little bit of a unique angle. And look, I mean, a month after that happens, a month after you do that story, or even less than that, there he is in, you know, the second inning of the All-Star game. Just, in, you know, the cover of this magazine is him, the picture of him in his, you know, All-Star finery. Um, smiling, per smiling. usual. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Great And smile. it's just, I mean, I'm, I'm, I obviously sometimes get attached to, you know, the stories I write and the versions of, you know, the narrative that I choose, you know, 
So when I wrote about Luis from the Dominican, obviously a big part of it was about that wild card game. And it's just so amazing to me to think about, you know, all these things we say about Severino, you know, and still the biggest start of his life was just a colossal failure. And yet, you know, the way he has rebounded from that moment in that wild card game to, you know, that inning striking out, uh, you know, Bryce Harper. And, you know, as uh, Nathan McAborski mentions in his story, you know, a couple innings later, Harper's being interviewed on the field and saying, you know, man, that home run derby last night had nothing on facing Luis Severino just now. To be able to rebound in the way that he did from that wild card start, it's hard not to see you know, his character and just the way he carries himself being a big part of that. Cause I mean, he would not have been starting that wild card game without the stuff he had, but you know, it takes a lot to recover from what happened on that night. And we saw it in subsequent games in that postseason. but I mean, you know, 14 wins in the first half of the season. I think we definitely saw it here. Absolutely. I think the, the two features that we've written before about Sevy have been kind of about his redemption and him coming back one from failing as a starter in his sophomore season and then yours after you know his his playoff run which was a mixed bag <laughs> mm-hmm. and so now I'm I'm really excited to have a cover story about Severino after just amazing amazing success in the first half of the season and hopefully it continues in the second half let's hope so Awesome. So it is called a rare, rare vintage, right? Rare vintage. Rare vintage. It's in the August issue of Yankees Magazine. So definitely check it out and stick around because coming right up, we'll hear from Sevi himself. Plus, we're going to talk about John's feature on pitching coordinator Danny Burrell and the insanely deep Yankees farm system. Hold tight. Over in Philadelphia earlier this season, Al Sanisiri battled some wind and talked to Luis Severino about his amazing first half of the season. Here's some of that conversation. What were your goals going into this season? I mean, my goal every season is that first is trying to be healthy. So work in the offseason with my body. I threw a lot of innings. That's the first time I threw that many innings. Tell me to, you know, to run a lot. So that's what I did. I went around a lot. We were a lot of low body workouts. And, you know, I'm trying to be healthy. And I'm trying to have a big year like I have last year. How do you feel physically? You feel different from last year, just from being from a cardio standpoint, better shape? Like, how has that transformed to what you are on the mound from last year? I mean, I know if you see me over there, but, you know, for me, like, I feel, like, good already in the fifth inning. Mm-hmm. I, that's what I feel I can throw like harder sort of after that. I think for me, you know, running is the main thing. You know, uh, if you can go and run every day for 30, 35 minutes, that, that can help you when you are over there in jam or you have 100 pitches or 95 pitches, you can go, you know, deeper in the game and you're not going to get tired. Yeah. How, how often do you run during the season? I don't know. We, we run every day. What did you learn from your 31 start, regular season starts and four postseason starts last year? Helped you I mean, for me, and the regular season is it's about you know like command your pitches, you know, beating the hand on the count, and try not to waste a lot of pitches, you know, uh, to be get deeper in the games. And postseason, you know, is something different. You know, it's not the same. Right. It's something about that, like pressure, uh, fans, everything is different. But the first experience it wasn't that good. Right. You know, uh, 
but after that I learned, you know, I, I learned to pre the, the postseason after the regular season, not trying to do too much, mm -hmm. not trying to overthrow. And I went to peace against Cleveland. And I, was, I, I wasn't like the first time, you know, I was calm. I was okay, let me get to the first inning and then to the next one. You know, the first, I think the first game against Minnesota, I was thinking, you know, ahead, like, Okay, let me go here. I want to go over there and throw five innings. You no, know, against Cleveland, I was thinking, okay, let me get one, and then the second one, then the third one. Obviously, this year you've been the best starting pitcher on one of the best teams. Um, I know that you're always determined to continue to improve. What are some of the things that you would want to improve on, even from this point to the second half of the season? Consistency on my secondary pitches. I'll be say, you know, change ya. I'll be the first one. You know, I think if I can. Command my more my my change at throwing for a strike. I think I can uh, become a better pitcher, a different pitcher too. I think it's gonna be my goal and always uh, my fastball command. You know, I and try to less balls. You know, uh, I think last year I get like uh, 50 something walks. So this year I, I went to you know not to get to 50. Either. You know, I try to throw more strikes. With a lineup like the one that you're pitching uh, with here this year, and that they're you know creating runs so consistently, how how does that affect the confidence you have on the I mean, we have a great team. You know, we have a team that, that we know we're gonna score runs. So uh, we're on the mound and, and, and I'm losing to nothing. I know it's not gonna end like that. So I have confidence in my team that that it's gonna score runs. Even if we don't score. You know, I'm not going to get mad because I know we have a good team. And if you don't hand me that, I'll end the guy hand me the next one. Yeah. How much do you enjoy coming to the ballpark every day with guys that, with a team that's kind of similar in age and guys you came up with, guys like Gary Sanchez and Aaron Judge and Great Bird and Austin Romine? I mean, you a lot because for me, like, I'm going from home to my second home. It's really nice to, to be with people that, you know, for a long time that know you when you get mad or, or happy, you know, uh, sometimes you're not in the mood to play or something like that, and, and some guys also don't know you and go over there and you get mad, but uh, being around with people that, that know you and you know him, it's very nice. The longer you pitch to Gary, it seems like the more you guys are on the same page. How would you describe the, the relationship with him, and how has all the years of pitching to him benefited you? He's been great, you know, he's a good pitcher, uh, a good catcher. I think he's getting smarter, I think, and like you say, you know, you've been, we've been like working for so long that he knows, you know, the piece that I want and what sign that I want. And so we're always on the same page. And sometimes, you know, we disagree and some stuff because sometimes I feel like this is the piece that I want to throw here. You know, he thinks, oh, okay, we can you know, go over there and talk and, and figure out something out. But I, I think he's a great catcher, you know, and I think he's getting more experienced every time he's catching the ball. From the people on the coaching staff to the veteran pitchers, guys like CeCe Sabathia and David Robertson and, and guys like that, or, or anybody who I'm forgetting, who's helped you the most in the growth that you've had over the last two years? I almost say my pitching coach, Larry Rochelle, you know, he's a really good pitcher. Joe, Joe Girardi, when he was here, you know, uh, sometimes uh, if I didn't understand something or Every time they put me out of the game early, you know, I want to know what what was the reason. So uh, the communication there was good, you know, with me and Larry. I think he's one of the other reasons uh, I became, you know, so good. Similar to last year, uh, especially in the postseason, you're you're usually or probably going to be facing the best pitcher from the other team. 
when you take the mound this fall in the postseason and, and in September. How do you feel about the challenge? I love it. Games? You do? I do love it. You know, I think every time I'm facing uh, uh, one of the best, you know, pitchers in baseball, I would say made me better. You know, made me to made me to get better. You know, to throw better pitches because I know if. Uh, if I get one run or two runs, that's gonna be it. Mm-hmm. You know, we're gonna, you know, because the score's gonna be low. So every time I'm facing somebody, you know, somebody good, I want to go over there and, and give my 101 percent, you know, to, to, to help my team win. Uh, speaking of some of the best pitchers in the game, or one of the best pitchers in the game, I know that your pitching idol, Pedro Martinez, is a guy you've gotten to know recently. Yeah. Um, in terms of like whatever you, you guys have talked about, whether it's pitch selection, improving a specific pitch, mental approach to the game, what has he been able to share with you that, that's helped you? I mean, Pedro is a typical guy, you know, a really nice guy. Uh, and he helped me a lot in 2000, since 2016, mm-hmm. you know. I, we really work more in mechanics than any, anything else, you know. He told me that I used to move, move a lot of my hands. So he told me, you know, some veteran guys kind of pick some of the stuff. So he told me if, if you move less, you know, I think you're going to be, you know, better command your pitches. And, and, and the go hitters is not going to know what pitch are you throwing. So uh, I worked in the off season. Uh, I bought a, a mirror, a big mirror, and I was doing that like almost every day, like a hundred times. I was doing that, and then when I came to spring training, it was like natural. We said right away. I think that's one of the reasons, you know, because my pass will come in and my slider got better. And you worked with him in the offseason, this past offseason too? Or? Yeah, I did, I did work out, not, not much Yeah. Than, than the first year, because he told me, you know, I was good. You know, I just need to, to keep working the same thing that I worked last year, you know. Keep working my mechanic, I haven't lost it, and, and, and you know, keep working on my pitches. You've been obviously extremely consistent this season, and you've had three games that really jumped out at, at me. The complete game shutout against Houston in May, and then two eight-inning shutouts in June, Detroit and Tampa. What, what was working so well in those games? I would say Houston was like, like something else because I, I think I was still, I would say, man, the what happened last year, yeah, you know, yeah. in, in the past season. So, uh, for me, like, it was something that, that I had to do, you know, to build my confidence and the confidence of my team, too. So I went there, you know, I went after everybody. I know everything was working. I threw all my pitches, and I was getting ahead on the count. Everybody, you know, I was going to strike one, strike two, and then, you know, getting everybody out. The same for, for the, the, the other two, two games. You know, I was... There are some times where you, you go out, you go to the mound, and you feel like this is my day, right? I was feeling like that those days, you know. Everything was working, you know, uh, the command on my three pitches. Because sometimes you go over there, you you have maybe command on, on two pitches. Mm-hmm. And you can still go over there and throw six innings, six good innings. But when you feel like all these pitches are working that day, you're commanding all your stuff, you're throwing a strike. You know it can't be good. What's the difference between you now and a couple of years ago when the command on all three pitches isn't working? How are you able to get through games and pitch well when it's not working now? For me, I think having my change my first two years, I didn't have it. You know, I was throwing faster, started a little bit change But now, if I see that my strategy is not working, I can go to my change and then go through through a good line and work fast with change, you know, and throw maybe if I throw 10 slider, I know, you know, 
maybe six is going to be bad, but the other ones, you know, I, I can still got somebody out. But I think that the big difference this year is my changeup. What was the experience of, of being in the All-Star game last year? What are you looking forward to having already done it? I mean, last year, it was amazing because I went with, with four other guys for the team. That, that was great. Went with Josh, you know, and Gary. Starting and, and then it was a special, you know. It's really nice for me more. What's more special because I, I have such a bad year the year before, and you know I work for my starting rotation, for my starting spot, and winning, and you know be able to go over there and, and do my job, and then be free, go to the house again. It was really special, and the fans, you know, have a, being with my family and meeting all the other players. How much are you enjoying this season? Have you been able to kind of take this in this year, how well you're doing it, and, and just kind of enjoy the, the, the ride so far? I know you've got a lot of important goals ahead of you, but have you enjoyed the first part of the season? Of course. You know, every time right now they give me the ball, you know, I'm trying to enjoy the, the game. I'm trying to have fun with the guys. And, and, and that was how it's, you know, it works. You're not going to go over there and, and, and this is a job, but if you treat it like a job every time, sometimes you're not going to have a good day. And you can translate that to the real world, you know, to out there. So I try every time I go over there, I try to have fun and, and play like, like, like a game. Like, I mean, I've been playing baseball thing as I was, like, maybe eight or nine years old. So now when they give me the ball, I'm doing those games, like, you know, I, I'm having fun. If they hit me, okay, I try to get a better pitch, but just, you know, enjoy the game. Um, what would it mean to win a Cy Young in your career or the next couple of years or this year or whatever? <laughs> I mean, I really, I'm not thinking really about that, you know, about winning Cy Young. I, I don't really know what, what they give me or, or nothing like that, but I know it means you are the, one of the best pitchers in the league. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, that would be great. That would be great to someday, you know, I win a Cy Young. It's a really nice award for, for somebody who worked for it, you know, and be recognized as the best pitcher in the league. But right now, I'm not thinking about Cy Young, nothing like that. I'm just thinking, you know, to go over there and, and, and get a good game to help my team win. And obviously, with as close as you guys came last year, what, what, are your, what would it mean? And, and how much do you think about this after you guys lost to Houston? What would it mean to get to the World Series and obviously win? The oh, this is going to be different this year. You know, we're going to go there. You know, I got fed in my team. You know, that, that, that. we have a great team. I think we're going to go all the way this year. And do you have long term goals, goals for your career, things you want to achieve that you think about that you write down? or? Or no? Uh, not, not, not like that, you know. Uh, right now, we're just thinking uh, five days, you know. I'm thinking of five days, okay, in five days, I'm going to preach, you know, uh, what didn't work last time. Uh, look something to fix it and try to piece it every five days. Everything else, I just want to be healthy. That's, that's my main goal, you know. If I'm healthy, I think I can help my team, you know, get where, where, where we want to go. Hey, this is Giancarlo Stan. You're listening to the Yankees Magazine Podcast. All right, we're back, John. You went on the road with pitching coordinator Danny Burrell. Why? You know what? It's a fair question. <laughs> I think that I would Great say. Question. 
I think that I would say in the aftermath, to piggyback on our previous conversation, the reason was to see how things like Luis Severino happen. Luis Severino was a minor international signing who's now the Yankees' ace. In the time it took for that to happen, there were you know some probably 12 different pitching coaches that he worked with. So what I wanted to see was how the Yankees convey a consistent message as these players are making their way up through the system. What the Yankees do and what you know the rest of the teams do is they have organizational coordinators who kind of go up and down. And you know, I wanted to spend time to see how at multiple stops and multiple affiliates, how that message gets conveyed. So for a little bit of backstory here, last year I wrote a story about Donnie Sands, um, a catcher in the Yankees organization. He was actually learning how to become a catcher at the time. He was previously an infielder. And there, the first time I was talking to him, what I said to myself was, man, I really need to talk to Josh Paul, who at the time was the Yankees uh, catching coordinator for the organization. And sure enough, Josh Paul happened to be in town in Charleston at the same time I was. So I got to spend time watching how an organizational guy works with a player, which is, you know, one of the 20 catchers that he has to deal with over the organization, how he makes it very personal. And so I, I wanted to, from that point, look at that actual role. Instead of looking at the player involved, I wanted to look at that role and how that role happens. I spoke to some people in the organization. They recommended Danny Burrell. I do not know if I've ever gotten a better recommendation in my life because I've never dealt with a better person than Danny <laughs> Burrell. But uh, it was just a fantastic experience. What were you expecting, I guess, going in? Because... The Yankees, and you say something, you say the stat in your story. How many pitchers are in this organization? And Danny Burrell knows every single one and everything about them and when they last started and how many pitches they threw. So were you expecting a guy with like encyclopedic knowledge of these pitchers? Like, how do you go into a situation like this? So I mean this extremely sincerely, and Al can uh, roll his eyes when I say this, because um, there were questions about this story, because the answer to that question is, I had no idea what I was expecting. I knew that there was something interesting that must have been happening on the road all this time. I know that the Yankees have a very strong organizational pitching staff. I did not know anything about who Danny Burrell was, what kind of job he did, what was involved in it. The days before I went there, I asked a lot of the players, like, literally, I've never met this person. What do I, what should I know about him? And everyone just said, he's a great dude, a great guy. I really, I, I just knew that he went from town to town. Um, so what I found, people had alluded to the fact that, you know, he catches the players' bullpens. Physically catches them. Physically catches Not them. Not just Literally, like he's watching on, them. He throws on his shin guards. He throws on his, you know, catcher's mask. For some reason, he doesn't use a chest protector, which almost broke another rib for him while we were down there. Was he ever a catcher? He was a pitcher. Okay, He then. was never a catcher. Right. He finds, and I'll get to this in a minute, he finds that he understands what's happening better when he watches the way it crosses the plate than when he does when he watches the pitcher. The Yankees' philosophy is not about... Um, standardizing how pitchers throw. It's about taking what they do and trying to see what works and trying to make the adjustments necessary. So the way he describes it is everything starts at the plate. What he means is the first thing he wants to see before he does anything else is what happens at the end of that pitch, what the late life is in the pitch, where it ends up. You know, he, he kept saying like he would never teach a guy to throw like Max Scherzer of mm-hmm. the Nationals, but obviously you're not going to change the way Max Scherzer throws. Right, so they're his, not going to bother it. It's it's more like adjusting as necessary. Absolutely. So his thing is just watch the way the ball works. 
and figure out what to do with that. It, it's hard to express just how interesting this was. You know, I'm a baseball junkie in a lot of ways. I've never seen this level of, you know, kind of how the sausage is made. To get to kind of what I think is the most interesting part of your story, it's not just always the pitchers that they signed as pitchers or drafted as pitchers. They're working with players converting to being pitchers as well. And that was something that you, I don't know if it was dumb luck or strategy, but you got to be in on the very first time somebody threw a pitch from a mound. Total dumb luck. So one of the things that I was most fascinated about, much to Al Chagrin, was (laughs) the way that these guys kind of are constantly at the mercy of what's happening in the organization. Um, you know, he was joking that, you know, he'll basically show up at a gate for a plane and they'll say, okay, Mr. Burrell's here. We can take off now um, because, <laughs> you know, he's just constantly traveling. He's constantly changing his plans. So in my head, I was kind of, you know, my plan had been, as you guys knew, to go to Staten Island for a couple of days with him and then go to Pulaski with him for a couple of days. One night at 1145 at night, about two days before I was supposed to fly to Pulaski, I get an email from him like, big capital B-I-G change happening need to go to Charleston and said change your flight (laughs) now the crucial thing to understand here about you know even our job as Yankees employees but writing about this you know from the media perspective generally speaking if something big is happening we are told to get away (laughs) Um, you know we're approaching you know at the time we're recording this right now you know we're approaching the trade deadline and I certainly I'm sure it's the same for you all my friends ask me you know who are the Yankees going to get who are the Yankees going to get we have no idea yeah I mean I'll I'll know when Mark Feinstein or Ken Rosenthal reports Mm -hmm. it I mean I have no inside inside knowledge for this stuff because I work you know, 300 yards from Brian Cashman's office. It's just not the way it works. If something's happening, they close ranks. When you're being told something big is happening, come join me, like you you come join. Mm-hmm. Um, he wouldn't tell me what it was. So I, I thought it was a trade situation. I thought they were evaluating a player who was about to be traded. He tells me they're converting a player to a pitcher and it's a big deal. And a lot of coordinators are coming in. So, you know, myself and the photographer I was with, Jim Petrosello, who took just amazing shots all week and again benefited from the fact that in the minor leagues, you know, you can stand you right can next to them. You can just be next to them. Mm-hmm. The one time in the entire week I spent with Danny that I was told I had to get away for a couple minutes was when they actually met with the player. And it ended up being Dermis Garcia. He was the top international signing for the team in the year he signed. He got $3.2 million as an infielder. He's still a huge prospect for this team. But ever since he came over, you know, everyone has been saying, like, man, that guy's got a good arm. And it's a running joke in the organization that when someone has a good arm, Burrell is just like, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. <laughs> now, look, there's no way you're going to give the pitching coordinator your $3.2 million international prospect. And yet, something happened this offseason, which was that the Yankees, like 29 other teams, started pursuing Shohei Otani. And when they were pursuing him, you know, they start trying to figure out this weird idea of, you know, a player working independently as both a pitcher and a hitter, in, even in the American League, and finding a way that that could work. And once that happened, you know, you start looking at the big picture, and it's a great thing that Cashman and his group do, is they're willing to look at the big picture, they're willing to try something new, and they saw this guy in Dermis Garcia, who, who knows what's going to happen, he's still in low A Charleston, is a long way off, but, you and he's know, never pitched before. He's never pitched before, but... <laughs> Every scout who's ever watched him, even before he signed, said this guy has, you know, 95, 98, even more than that in his arm. And one thing Cashman said to me that was interesting is a lot of times, and and by no means am I indicating in any way here this is happening because Dermis Garcia is any kind of failed prospect. Couldn't be farther from the truth. The guy's so young. Like, 
he's been doing great. Um, right, anything can still happen with right. this kid. This is not to be read. What I'm about to say is not to be read to them saying he's a failed prospect. But what Cashman said is, you know, so many times you'll see a player because it's worth reminding these guys when they're learning when they're coming up. You know, the best players right now, they almost all pitched. You know, mm-hmm. all those first basemen you're looking at right now, they were all pitchers. Those shortstops were all pitchers. Um, at some point, they made a choice. Are they a pitcher? Or are they something else? So many times what happens now is a guy, you know, is a prospect of one thing, he fails, and then another team picks him up and tries to throw him on the mound. And usually it doesn't work, but maybe sometimes it does. What Cashman said to me is, why are we going to let another team do this when we can do it right now? And he admitted that, you know, their eyes were opened a little bit by pursuing Otani. So, again, I'm told that this is the one meeting I can't go to, and it's when, after a game in which, I should mention now, Dermis Garcia went four for five with an inside-the-park home run. You know, he, he's doused in Gatorade. He's the player of the game. He's interviewed on TV. He comes into this meeting in the manager's office right after this. And obviously, you know, what you figure after a game like that is, cool, I'm being promoted. Right. And, you know, in then, a you, way. then you look around <laughs> and it's like, except why is the pitching coordinator here for me, a third baseman? So what they were telling him that day was, we're going to move you off third base. We're going to move you to first base and designated hitter. And we are going to let you at the same time develop as a pitcher. So what that meant is, you know, he's not going to play every day anymore. He's going to have a limited, you know, he's still going to work his his hitting every day, but they're working so that, you know, by mid-August, their goal is to have him throw an inning in a game for Charleston. He had never pitched in his life. He had never pitched off a mound for sure. And so the next day, and again, this is dumb luck that we happen to be there. The next day, Jim and I are standing there in the bullpen in Charleston as he, for the first time in his life, threw off a mound and you know he's just this goofy kid he's just having the day of his life you know he's used to being a top prospect suddenly all of his teammates are crowded around the plate watching him throw how did he do he did okay he 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 he, it was very interesting because they kept saying to him 70 percent 70 percent and i said to danny afterward you know do you trust that he threw 70 percent and he said yes because I know how fast he can throw and he was throwing about 90 about 91 it's amazing some of them were strikes a lot of them weren't um, but he was about 90, 91 at 70%, you know, he, his extent. So, you know, Danny is extremely into and understands really well, all the stats and all the analytics involved. And one thing he has all this data he's able to get, which tracks, you know, how the balls spin and where the release points are and all these things. And one thing he's very into obviously is a pitcher's extension. Um, you know, the longer your extension is, the later you release the ball. And that means the later you release the ball or the farther down you release the ball, the less time a batter has to react to it. He would expect somebody at Dermis Garcia's size to have about a, you know, a six foot release point uh, or six foot extension. And he had a seven foot extension. Wow. wow. Um, he said that he has no doubt that he's going to have a great curveball just by watching him. He said that he didn't teach him any grips before the session. He told him to just throw. And he said the ball was cutting really naturally. They have high hopes. This doesn't mean it's going to work. It's a crazy ask to have this guy pitch for the first time but to watch this happen you know literally i wanted to go see you know how you turn a pitcher into a major leaguer i did not expect to go there to find out how you turn a third baseman into a major league pitcher and just it was total dumb luck that we got to see it and it was fascinating one thing that's really interesting about that is you look at how athletes the greatest athletes in any sport a lot of times before they made it to the professional level excelled in other sports or excelled at other positions you know the best players on little league teams generally pitch and do something else because it's such an important position 
in sports. It's it's maybe the only position in sports, even more than a football quarterback, where you literally control the fate of the game and you put the best player in that position. But I think this speaks volumes about just the type of athlete he is. If this was, you know, if the Yankees wanted him to go and, and play soccer, he'd probably go out and be the best soccer player on the field or Absolutely. Whatever, or golf or whatever it may be. But I think it's it, it must have been impressive to see the type of athlete and, and type of range in terms of athletics this this person has. And that's what that, ex- that extension I talked about. That's athleticism. That's a guy who has great flexibility. That's a guy who, you know, the reason he's able to extend that way is not beca- is partly because he doesn't know what he's doing. But also it's just, you know, this is a f- incredible athlete who they're putting on the mound. This is a guy who can obviously hit. And one interesting thing is he had been struggling a little bit this year hitting. And, you know, his numbers were a little bit down from where they expected mm-hmm. them to be. Since this meeting, his average is up about 30 points. I'm not, not exaggerating. He started hitting home runs and things like that. And I spoke to Burrell after the fact, and I didn't put this in the story. And he said he has no doubt that this is just a guy's natural athleticism because he's no longer thinking about his hitting so much. He's also worrying all the time about this pitching he's doing on that he's less in his own head. And he goes out there and, you know, he's just being an athlete again. And so, again, you watch – you know, a guy get onto the mound for the first time being told not even how to throw a fastball, just being told basically throw like you would throw from third base. And you can see, you know, I mean, I, I haven't even scratched the surface on yet, yet on like what I learned by watching this guy. The fact is he is the funniest, most charming, most cheerful baseball person I've ever been around in my Danny life. Burrell Danny is. Burrell. It is impossible to imagine not falling in love with him if you're working for him, working with him. And, and, and one of the cool things for me was, you know, is by going to two stops with him. So by seeing him work with two sets of pitchers, seeing kind of some of the same shtick and it's not, you know, disingenuous the way he does it. It's almost the opposite. It's really important to him to, you know, exaggerate almost that naturally cheerful and happy side of him because he wants these guys to be comfortable around him. It's part of why he catches them instead of just watching them from like a seat. You know, he does not want to be a guy coming in from corporate where everybody, you know, tucks in their shirt really well and stands up straight. You know, he wants them to be telling the jokes and he wants them to, you know, be messing around a little bit because he wants to see who they actually are and have them trust him so that if you get stiff and you're standing on the mound, you're trying to impress somebody, you're going to overthrow, you're going to underthrow. He wants them to throw as they throw. He wants them to not act like, you know, oh, the boss is watching me and he's going to tell Cashman, so I better be careful. Right. His job, he will not be effective at his job if they're not being themselves. And those guys will not turn into the Luis Severinos Mm -hmm. if he can't help them because that's his job. His whole job is to get a guy like, well, now, Dermis Garcia, to Yankee Stadium's pitching mound. And while he's doing that, he's also dealing with 185 other pitchers. Right, and not all of them are going to make it. No. no, and he mentioned, you know, he thinks there are 70 big league pitchers in this organization, and that is a crazy That's high number. Amazing. Like, and, and, and I checked that with Cashman. He said this is the deepest their pitching staff their organizationally has ever been. You know what I think is, is fascinating about this and – um, why stories like this are so important to what we do in Yankees Magazine. Um, you look at how deep of a dive this was. You know, every day, uh, you know, on Sports Talk Radio in New York, you hear two things this summer. Uh, you hear 
talk about how great the Yankees front office is and how great their, you know, the, the staff that Brian Cashman has assembled is and all the great work that Brian Cashman does. We know that to be true about Brian Cashman and the job that he's done with the minor league system and the job that he's done at the major league level and the, the way that this team has rebuilt itself in like five seconds to become a contending team and last year and, and, and again this year. But what's interesting about it is this is the real reasons that it is so good. These are the real people behind Brian Cashman that he's employed. And it's nice to hear somebody about somebody like Danny Burrell, who's obviously, as you were just discussing, immensely talented, smart, hardworking, great guy. And that's why that the success and the character of the, of the of the player personnel department is what it is. And it's, it's, this is, it's nice to hear about it, not from a superficial type of way, but really an in-depth way. And I, I think this is a great story for, for that reason. For sure. I mean, the Luis Severino's, the Gary Sanchez's, the Greg Bird's, they don't come out of nowhere. No. It takes a lot of hard work to make these players into who they are. And it starts from day one. And that's when Danny Burrell gets his hands on these people. So absolutely. And I mean, the reason this team succeeds in the way it does right now, the reason this pitching, the organization's pitching staff looks the way it does right now is because from the Dominican Summer League all the way up to Scranton Wilkes Bar, you know, they have a consistent message. They have an organizational philosophy that is carried through from bottom to top. And that is how you keep on, you know, developing these pitchers. The fact is, if you go through most of that Yankees clubhouse right now. This is not the 2002 or 2003 Yankees where you could say, you know, this team flecked its muscles in the free agent market and that's who they are. That's just not what this team is. This team is, you know, canny, smart trades, a couple of interesting signings. Look, obviously, not every team could have afforded to take on Giancarlo Stanton's contract, but, you know, they still were the ones who made the interesting trade to make it happen. This is not just the Steinbrenner family flexing its muscles and, you know, trying to beat everybody up to get every single free agent in the league. That's not the reason this Yankees team is good right now. And I think it's about time, you know, as much credit as Cashman gets for some of the trades he's been able to make, you know, the the player development operation that this organization is running right now um, from the scouting on the amateur level all the way up is just remarkable. And I think that whatever happens this year, I think this team has a long window. Whatever happens when this window finally closes, the story of, you know, this generation of players is written, I think you're going to be a lot of those names that are right now behind the scenes will be a big reason why this has happened. Yeah, for sure. And I'm glad that we were able to get the scoop and you did an amazing job telling this story because it truly came out fascinating. I, I loved reading it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. What's it called? The story is called Master Craftsman. Master Craftsman. It is in the August issue of Yankees Magazine, along with a lot of other great content, which you can also find online at yankees.com slash magazine. Uh, that's it for us. Uh, <laughs> definitely follow us on Twitter. We're at Yanks Magazine. Give us a shout out. Tweet at us. Like, subscribe, rate, review. You know, the whole thing. All the, all the stuff. Do all of it. Um, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.